this is Ye Old Dragons Library, the storytelling podcast. Here in Season 3, we're featuring the steampunk series, Guardians of the Time Stream. This is a chapter from the prequel story, Odessa Fremont. Ready for fun with fantastical fiction? Then let's begin. Chapter 7 Interesting, Sutter said, glancing down at the pictures. He started to say something more, then stopped, frowning deeper as he leafed through all the drawings. Why did he want you to give these to me? Said you didn't get everybody. Mr. Oppenheimer, he wants them all hauled away. Why didn't he bring them himself? Scared, she shrugged. "Uh Uh-huh. More scratching of papers against each other as he flipped through the sketches. S. watched him, putting some sketches aside after frowning at them longer than the others. She guessed he was putting aside the sketches of the men who hadn't been captured. Mission accomplished, even if she hadn't set out to hand over the sketches today. "'What's in the bags, lad?' he asked, startling S., so she realized she had started to list to one side and her eyes were closing. "'Clothes? All I got in the world, sir. I didn't steal it, swear.' Uh "'Uh-huh.' His mouth softened again. Did this Mr. Oppenheimer pay you to play messenger? Not until I get back to him. S. flinched as a drop of sweat rolled down her right temple. She tried to remember if she still had some coins in her pocket. Maybe she should have said that he paid her, or couldn't pay her, or she did it because he was nice to her, or something else. What if Sutter wanted her to lead them to the non-existent Mr. Oppenheimer? Hungry? Starving. That earned a chuckle from the agent. He didn't look quite so grim now. How about Mr. Oppenheimer? Sir? Is he hungry? I figure a man who could get close enough to get detailed pictures like these. Well, he must be close enough to see everything going on here. Maybe so close he's afraid to move, afraid to get caught. Maybe he's stuck, caught somewhere, and can't leave until the excitement dies down. Sutter leaned closer to her. He can't afford to be caught by either side. He sat back. His eyes narrowed as he looked her over again. Did he explain to you what's going on? A little. It was hard to think of more lies, more embroidery for the story, as her grandmother would have put it, when her stomach had awakened and taken over most of her concentration. What exactly is contained in the little? S. shivered and hunched down lower in the seat. None of her discomfort play-acting. Miss Van Hastings and that man who kept coming to visit, they pretended not to be Southerners, sir, but they were. They tried to talk like Northerners, but they slipped. Mr. Oppenheimer found the tunnels just before he got sacked for trying to sweet-talk the lady. He figured the man was making her do things she didn't want. S. nearly gagged at offering more support for Miss Van Hastings' lies. Maybe this was what her grandfather sometimes had lectured her and Yuli about when warning them not to lie, because each one required more lies to support it and turned into a tangle. How did he find the tunnels? What was he looking for? Sutter asked, when she had paused too long. S shrugged, earning a groaning sigh from him. What will it take for Mr. Oppenheimer to come out of hiding? Don't know, sir. You're exceedingly polite and well-spoken for a boy who looks like he's been relegated to the barn or, or the back alley all his life. S. hunched over more, embraced for something physical. Maybe the worst danger of all, hands grabbing her, 
searching her, peeling away her cap to reveal her tightly pinned braids or discover her different shape under her clothes. She should have asked Sarah for that padded corset that filled in her hourglass shape and flattened her hips and bottom. Was it too late to catch up with her before her steamship sailed? It's late, the soldier offered. We could lock the boy up, feed him, give him a place to sleep. Maybe if he doesn't come back, this Mr. Oppenheimer will get worried and come looking for him. Boy can't know much more than he's already said. This man sounds like he'd know a lot you'd find useful, sir. Indeed he would, Sutter mused, narrowing his eyes more as he studied S. A quick snatching motion with his hand earned a squeak from her. She dodged, falling off the chair, but not before he caught hold of her right hand. S shuddered as he pulled her back up to her feet and turned her hand over, studying her fingers. Your Mr. Oppenheimer isn't the artist. Sutter's smile was smug, yet oddly compassionate. Is he? His fingertips running over her middle and index fingers made her shiver more. He pressed on the dents on the first knuckle, earned from gripping the pencils tight all day, the smears of lead on her fingertips from rubbing at various places to create shading. She hated being so close to him. Any second now, those incredibly quick, alert eyes would decipher that her cap wasn't quite as floppy on her head as it should be, and yank it off, revealing the bulge of braids that it covered. Sir, she whispered, and forced herself to meet his gaze. Her grandparents had several traveling magician friends, and they had confided one of the secrets of their trade was to distract the audience away from what they were doing, to give them something else to look at and suspect, so they didn't see the actual sleight-of-hand trick happening right under their noses. As long as she met Sutter's eyes, he wasn't looking at any of her other features. Sutter let out another loud sigh and nodded to the soldier. Before S. could anticipate his next move, the agent gave her a shove right into the soldier's grasp. She fought a sudden urge to weep in relief when he told the soldier, Cosgrove, she learned his name was now, to take the boy to the kitchen, feed him, give him a bucket of water for washing, and find a room where he could spend the night comfortably. There was plenty of time in the morning to continue the questioning. It was obvious, Sutter added as Cosgrove led us away, that the boy was on their side. They just had to figure out who he feared more to get him to talk. Maybe someone on the staff knew who he was and could answer some questions, fill in the blanks, in the morning. S. did not want to be here in the morning, and she most certainly did not want to stand under the scrutiny of any of the teachers or the housekeeping staff or, God protect her, Miss Van Hastings herself. A woman as scheming as the headmistress, who would sell out her own brother to protect herself, might just be observant enough to see S. under her disguise. Praying, she decided nearly twenty minutes later, truly did work. God did hear. S. nearly laughed aloud, nearly dropped the armful of blankets and the net bag of bread, apples, cheese, and the bottle of cold milk Cosgrove had made her carry after a detour through the school kitchen. The soldier nudged her with the bucket of water he carried to get her to go through the door of the storage room holding all the boxes of confiscated personal items. It's not that bad, lad, Cosgrove said. The only room in the entire bedeviled place without a window. Agent Sutter just wants to make sure you're here in the morning, that's all. S. bit her lip against laughter and stumbled into the room. Cosgrove put the bucket down nearly under the hatch for the dumbwaiter. He glanced at it once frowned, 
Maybe he came from a home that didn't have such conveniences and stepped over to the oil lamp hanging from a chain in the middle of the room. After he lit it from the candle he carried, he stepped back to the door. He waited until S. spread out the blankets, just around the corner from the door, behind the first rack of shelves where she wasn't so visible. Be a good lad and eat your dinner and get some sleep. Hear me? He winked at her when she just nodded, then stepped back and pulled the door closed. A moment later, the key turned in the lock. S. knew better than to assume they would simply leave her alone for the rest of the night, especially with the oil lamp burning like that. She was proven right twenty minutes later, when another soldier opened the door, leaned in, and studied her for a moment. S. was in position, leaning against the wall, slouched down, feigning sleep, a fragment of bread in her hand and the bottle of milk empty and lying on its side. She had kept most of the provisions for her journey. This new soldier also glanced at the hatch for the dumbwaiter, glanced again at her, again at the hatch. It was quite frustrating, watching the flickers of his eyes as they shifted back and forth. Finally, a little smirk twisted his mouth and he stepped into the room, lifted the glass chimney on the lamp, and blew out the flame. He said not a word as he stepped out and pulled the door closed and clicked the key in the lock extra loud. Bully, she muttered. Just what did that smirk mean? Did he know what a dumbwaiter was? And he was going to scold Cosgrove for putting her in a room with such easy escape? Or did he think that she didn't know what it was and laughed at her as a stupid lower-class boy who didn't recognize an escape route when it was feet away from his grasp? S. waited another half hour, just in case. No one came. In the dark, she rummaged through the boxes of her former classmates, finding enough items, decorative pillows and favorite clothes taken away as punishment, to approximate her shape, hidden under the blankets on the floor. She took the dumbwaiter down to the next floor and climbed out a window. She crept through the shadows, halting at every rustle of leaves, to a low point in the fence and hedge separating the school grounds from the next property. She tossed her bags over the fence and hedge and crawled under. By dawn, she was miles away, safely tucked up in a wagon in a long line pulled by a steam cart. For all she knew, it was the same train of wagons she had used for her original escape less than a week ago. S. burrowed in deep to hide behind the bundles and crates and barrels. When the wagon stopped, she could climb out, hidden behind the high fence of the freight yard, and find her next mode of transportation to Parkerton, where Giles and the rest of the household staff were to meet. S. looked forward to telling them about her adventure and rejoicing over the downfall of so many resurrectionists. Maybe they could help her find a way of ensuring Miss Van Hastings was duly punished. For now, though, she made herself as comfortable as she could for the long journey. She didn't manage to fall asleep right away, though the rocking and creaking and groaning of the wagons around her was soothing. S. thought about her brother, speculating on where he had vanished to. She had memories of hushed, urgent voices in the middle of the night, and before that, arguments between Yuli and their grandfather. Her brother was up to something, and S.'s impression was that while Ernest approved of the principal, he was disappointed in how Yuli carried out whatever escapades were getting him into trouble. Thinking back now, that struck her as somewhat strange for the very first time. Was she mistaken, or were her grandparents not as upset as they should have been when Yuli vanished? Maybe they knew where he had gone? Doesn't matter now, does it? She muttered in the stuffy darkness, 
I need to find Yuli. Then we can go find Granny and Grandfather together. Her efforts to dredge up everything she could remember from those tumultuous days, immediately before and after her brother vanished, only served to push her over the final edge into sleep. Her dreams were full of finding her brother, then losing him again as soon as she reached for his hand. In the last dream before she woke, Yuli hung by his knees from a trapeze bar, suspended from an airship. He played his flute, demanding she play the signal song before he would pull her up into the airship with him. S. woke, thirsty and hot. She put replacing her flute at the top of her list. There was no telling when one of her grandparents' secretive friends might be nearby. How would they know who she was and that she needed help if she couldn't play the signal songs? Her narrow escape at the school taught her never to assume that silence meant safety. S. peered in all directions, to make sure no one was watching before she slid out from under the wagon cover into the rutted freight yard. The driver had parked near the gates, which hung open, undoing all the security offered by the yard proprietor. What good was it to park the wagons of freight inside a fenced-in yard if people could just walk through the gate? S. glanced around and saw the wide porch full of tables, where a handful of men were eating. She ducked into the shelter of the fence and peered through a gap in the thin wooden slats. Perhaps the security wasn't quite so bad, because anyone sitting on the porch could watch the gate of the yard. If she tried to walk out the gate, she would be seen. Claiming she was leaving, not breaking in, would just land her in deeper trouble. The seat of one of the wagons parked up against the fence in the back of the yard was just high enough for her to stand on it and haul herself up to the top of the fence. S. hated leaping where she hadn't had a chance to look ahead, but the fence was thin enough it wouldn't hold her weight for long. Indeed, it started to wobble, just in the few seconds she hung there, pulling her legs up so she could roll over the top and drop to follow the bags she had tossed over. Her ankles hurt when she hit the ground hard, but her boots proved sturdy enough for the task, and she did manage to land on her hands and feet instead of on her face or her side. S. stumbled for the first dozen steps before the ache faded, and she was sure she hadn't broken her ankles. An hour later, an elderly lady driving into Parkerton with a wagon full of bales of wool and buckets of berries offered her a ride in return for her help in unloading at the general store. S. gladly took the offer. The lady, who had introduced herself as Mrs. Hopkins, was chatty, filling her in on the exciting events of the last few days, since she didn't recognize S. as being from around there. "'What did you say your name was again, boy?' "'William, ma'am. Ma calls me Willie.' S. offered a shy shrug and grin. "'She says it's because she doesn't know. Willie do his chores on time or not. I'm trying to do better.' To her relief, the lady chuckled. "'Where is your mother?' Mrs. Hopkins glanced over her shoulder from the driver's seat. S. sat far back on the folded-down tailgate of the wagon. "'We're staying with my pa's brother. Pa's looking for work in Washington, all the rebuilding. He's a carpenter.' She waited until Mrs. Hopkins turned around to look and hooked her thumb back down the road. "'Uncle Reuben's a nasty cuss. Told me I could come to town and gave me five whole cents for candy, but he didn't tell me what a long walk it was.' "'I'm surprised at him.' letting a boy your age wander around alone, with all the outlaws suddenly coming out of holes in the ground. Outlaws, ma'am? S. was just relieved that Mrs. Hopkins hadn't asked why she was carrying her bags, if she was just walking to town for candy. 
Maybe the elderly lady wasn't as observant or as smart as she appeared. Personally, S. thought it a little chancy that she would let a stranger climb into her wagon, even if she did need help unloading it. The saddest thing. A gentleman staying in Mr. Albert's hotel was accosted by a group of ruffians, and when they didn't get what they wanted, my friend Mrs. Crabtree says the argument went on for what seemed like hours, they shot him. They threw him into the street, and they shot him while he lay there in the dust. Dr. Alberts, that's Mr. Alberts' son, he doesn't think the poor man is going to make it. She tisked several times. Rumors are, all the men had the most disgraceful, thick southern accents, and the man they shot even called them resurrectionists. What is the world coming to, when these rebels are still allowed to run around free in this country, trying to stir up all that disgraceful, terrible war all over again? Someone should lock them up and throw away the key. Yes, ma'am, it's horrible, all right. S. shuddered and fought the urge to jump off the tail of the wagon and run the rest of the way into town. It was still several miles away, according to Mrs. Hopkins, and the wagon was rolling along at a good clip. Going on her own two feet would only leave her sweaty and filthy and exhausted. No one would take her seriously if she staggered into town, looking even more ragged and filthy than she already was. She gripped the wooden slats on either side of her and prayed all the rest of the way. Please, Lord Jesus, please, don't let that man be Giles. Please, please, if it is Giles, don't let him die. How could the resurrectionists have caught up with him, and so quickly? S. fought the rising, queasy sensation that this was yet another mistake she had made that had caused trouble for those she loved. We've come to a break in the story. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a book that you might be interested in reading. Come on a quest with the children who call themselves The Hunt. Years ago, they were sent from an endangered world in another universe to hide on Earth to protect them from a despot who wants to command their talents. Given into the keeping of the Hounds of Haman, the members of The Hunt have been separated by time as well as distance. They know each other by the scars of the teeth marks of the hounds on their wrists. Some have been in our world for decades, others only for a few years. Before their enemies follow them to earth to capture and enslave them, they must locate each other and find the way back home to save their world. Titles include Dawn Memories, Quartet, Butterfly, Finders Keepers, and Gathering. Fantasy from Michelle Levine and Writers Exchange mlevine.com and writers-exchange.com And now, back to the story. Dr. Alberts had his surgery in a wing of the hotel built on four years ago, according to Mrs. Hopkins, which connected the hotel and the pharmacist's shop. Dr. Alberts' sister and aunt ran the pharmacy. That would have been a scandal 20 years ago, again, according to Mrs. Hopkins, but... Times they are a-changing, and we do so appreciate having one of our own dispensing patent medicines and compounding whatever good Dr. Alberts prescribes. It's a feeling of comfort, don't you think? Someone you know is more sure to do a good job. S. nodded and murmured agreement, and plotted how she could get into the convalescent room if she couldn't find Giles, just to assure herself the shot man wasn't Giles. 
Mrs. Hopkins informed her the convalescent rooms were on the first floor of the hotel, set aside for Dr. Albert's patients when the hotel expanded. She seemed to find great pride in saying the word convalescent, almost as if it gave the town as much style and class as having a doctor and a pharmacy. S. had a good idea in her head of the layout of the pharmacy, surgery wing, and hotel, just from the elderly woman's good-natured gossip. All she needed was ten minutes, twenty at the most, to get in and see how Giles was doing, and assure herself the wounded man wasn't Giles at all. The wait wasn't long, once she said goodbye to Mrs. Hopkins and found the hotel, because whoever built the wing for the surgery seemed to have a dislike for windows. S. found it entirely too easy to creep through the shadows, without even having to bend over, and sit in a deep pool of darkness in the corner between hotel and surgery. The windows on this side of the hotel were wide and short, high in the wall, most likely just to let light in, but not to provide a view, especially not a view into the narrow alley. She climbed up on the roof of the surgery, then into the hotel by stepping onto the balcony running along the second floor. Just like those big city hotels have, so people can look down on the street and catch the sunrise, Mrs. Hopkins had declared with such delight and pride as fully expected to find out she was related to the Alberts by blood. From there, she popped the frail lock on one of the French doors that led into an unoccupied room. All the hotel guests were either in their rooms for the night or finding entertainment at the small new music hall at one end of the street or the saloons at the other end. The town had three saloons, proving just how large it had grown. Again, information provided by Mrs. Hopkins. S. speculated that the woman had provided quite a bit of information to enemy forces during the war, so rebel spies had left the town entirely alone. Once inside the convalescent rooms, she found the injured man readily enough and let out a long, loud sigh of relief, crackling a bit at the end with a hint of a sob. By his thick red hair alone, the man with bandages across his face and chest wasn't Giles. Vivian? the man whispered. S. gasped and stepped back away from the bed, realizing too late that she had come too close, so the feeble illumination from the shielded nightlight had touched her face. Then a second later she realized what he had said. Why did you call me that? You're Vivian and Edwards... No, you're not the boy, Ulysses. Too young. But your face, all the best parts of them, in one face. A chuckle escaped him, ending in a cough that sounded wet, like it would bring up blood at any moment. S. hurried to help him sit up, caught up one of the towels sitting on the low table beside the bed. The man pressed it over his mouth and shuddered and gasped. She cringed when he took the towel away, and it was spattered with bright speckles of blood. That's Matilda's spirit in you, isn't it, he said, his voice harsh like he had splinters in his throat. The girl's name. Can't remember the girl's name. By the great machine, how the years have fled by. How do you know my parents? S. helped him sit back, after tugging the pillows into position to support him. When he gestured at the nightlight, she took it down from its arm on the wall and raised the shield to give more illumination. He was pale, making darker contrasts with the red splotches of exertion on his face. Something niggled at the back of her mind. She thought perhaps she had seen his face once, long ago. Or maybe not him. Maybe a photograph? She tried to imagine him changed to gray tones or sepia. Was it a tintype or something newer? It's all right, he whispered, and patted her hand. 
S. was surprised to see she had come to perch on the side of the bed, within reach of him. You think you know my face, but can't remember when or where. It's all right, Odessa. Yes, I remember your name. Your mother was the whimsical one, naming your brother Ulysses and you Odessa. How she loved Greco-Roman mythology. Much more fascinating and easier to understand, she said, than the Egyptian and Incan and Norse that was spoon-fed to us since our cradle days. How did you... I know how. The resurrectionists. S. muffled a growl of frustration that she feared might erupt into a shriek that would bring the doctor running. She knew she had very little time until he or his assistant came to check on their patient. She had spent the whole evening watching them, learning their routine. While she admired their diligence, it frustrated her, especially now, when there were so many questions rising up in her mind that she needed to ask this man, Who are you? Your brother called me Uncle Darius. I haven't seen your parents since your mother was expecting you, but your father kept me informed up until the... Well, even the most cautious archaeologists run into nasty surprises left by the ancients. He patted her hand again. You're here for Giles, aren't you? We're already at the end of today's chapter. I hope you enjoyed yourself and you're eagerly looking forward to the next episode of Ye Old Dragons Library.